you should be able to build businesses that are highly profitable, create tons of jobs for people, but are simultaneously moving markets and doing things that are good for the world. And I, I think that if we did a little bit more of that, we'd be in a much better place as a country and as a world than we are today. Welcome to No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis. Each week, we're talking to women playing at the top of their game. So how are they doing it? Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. Joining us today is a woman who started her first company, a cleaning business, in college. She goes out a few years later to launch a bridal registry, sells it to none other than Martha Stewart Living, where she continues to work, and by that time she's established herself in the fashion and retail world. Now, this mother of three is working on her biggest endeavor yet, reimagining the beauty industry. Greg Renfrew is the founder and CEO of Beauty Counter, and we welcome her to No Limits. Thank you for having me. When you were a kid, did you see yourself doing things like this? What did you envision? Well, I wanted to be on. I wanted to be Annie when I was little. Um, I think that um, you wanted to be on stage. I did. I was like, I love to sing. I sang all the time. I still sing. My daughters are really into singing. My, my son, not so much. But um, really, is yeah. there a beauty counter song that goes on behind the scenes? <laughs> well, oh, I don't know. I listen to Eminem when I'm going on stage. If really? I, if you have one chance, lose yourself. Opportunity, lose yourself because I know some people. There's love no Macaulay Pfeiffer. This <laughs> is know, my life. But it's always about you have one chance, one opportunity. Are you going to blow it? Are you going to make it happen? Happen, really, and I think for me, when I'm going on stage and I'm nervous, I I think about that. You know, as I, I think when I was a, a little, I think I had two incredible parents who told me I could be anything I wanted to be, and I hope to instill that in my children. And I always tell um, both my daughters and my son, like, you know, I want you to be whatever you want to be, and you can you can do this. My mom said, you want to be the president of the United States, then you can be the president of the United States. And I think they did. You want to be the president of the United? I States? I didn't, but I wanted to do something important with my life, and I think that. I always felt that from day one, I I understood business. Um, I was never amazing athlete or whatever, but I, I have really loved the business world, and I've always seen um, kind of where it's going, and I've really enjoyed participating in that since since day one. But I do think people should, I hope people and more people, and especially women, have the confidence to pursue their dreams and to even if they don't have all the answers, to, to take something that you think you love. I mean, you've obviously done it. You're quite successful. You you saw something probably that you that, that struck you, and you started to pursue that, and the one thing will lead you to the next thing. Right. It doesn't have to be the full answer on day one. Right. I think very few people say, you know, well, when I was five years old, I knew I was going to be definitively be an astronaut. Or I, was, I mean, you know, it, there are a lot of iterations, but I think, you know, focusing on things that you think you're good at, enjoy, and, and allowing the first step to lead to the second, and having the confidence to put yourself out there, I think, is really important. You studied English, which isn't always something that people associate with business, people getting into business. Why did you choose that major? I know it's really funny because I guest lecture all the time at business schools. And the last five years, I've been guest lecturing at Stanford Business School. And I always say, I don't have a business degree. I studied English because I... I felt having a strong command of the English language was really important for business. And I think so much of business comes down to communication here in this business. I always say to people, you know, I don't care what business you're in. You're in the people business. And if you can communicate properly with people, both, you know, orally and written and, you know, however we want to do it, that that will really help you in, in business. And I think strong communication is at the core. And so I studied English. I mean, I also probably didn't know exactly what I wanted to do at the time. And it, it felt like a very strong foundation. Now there's so much noise out there. I mean, there's social media. There is messaging everywhere. As a strong communicator, how do you make sure people hear your message and not someone else's? 
think it's a really good question and it's a difficult thing to do today. It's a couple of things. I think it is being consistent in your messaging. You know, if brands begin to resonate after they've seen the same thing over and over, I think they say it's like seven take times for someone to actually acknowledge a brand. And so I think part of it is being consistent and clear in your communication. I think having an authentic story and being confident telling the story. You know, people, when I started Beauty Counter, people would say, oh, well, don't say you started because you watched An Inconvenient Truth or your friend, you know, well, that's the honest story. Tell the story. People want to, you know, they want to hear the actual authentic story, why I started the company, why I think this work that we're doing is important. I think we've powered our business through through storytelling. It's why we decided to work with the network of independent consultants, because they're out there telling their story, but they're telling it in the greater, in in sort of on the platform of our story as, as a company and as a movement. And I think that consumers, um, you know, they react to the personal stories and they want to understand why someone started a brand, you know, why Tom's did what they did or why Patagonia takes the stands that they do. And I think that it's very, very important. I think if you are consistent with your storytelling and you're open and honest, you will find that you strike that balance and you'll find that people start to resonate. Did you get pushback in the beginning about the direct consulting path that you were taking, because that can get a very negative. There are some, you know, you go online, there's pictures of other beauty brands that have, you know, former consultants showing all their inventory in their basement, and they're not happy customers. Right. Well, first of all, Beauty Counter ships direct to consumers. So if you order a product at a social or online, you know, through your friend or anyone else, then that will go directly into our company, into the fulfillment center and out to you as a consumer. We don't allow our consultants to hold any inventory. They're allowed to buy samples for their own personal, well, they can personally consume, obviously, and buy samples, but we actually monitor the size of purchase so that no one can do that. And we monitor it, you know, online. And, you know, if we see things being sold, we completely shut it down. I think what gives people the negative bias is that, there, you know, there, like any industry, there are a few bad eggs that will kind of give people um, uh, this perception of a marketplace. You know, in the direct sales world, the companies that are truly doing the right thing are those that are selling and exchanging product. You are paid on the sale of your products. You're not paid on the promise of a business opportunity. And I think that's where things have gone awry. I was one of those people. To be honest, I had a very negative bias towards direct sales. But what I have found is that it is one of the most compelling business opportunities in the world. It allows you to build a business flexibly on your time. You can make of it what you want. It's a job like any other. If you have five hours a week, you're going to end up earning what would you know what five hours a week. If you put 50 hours a week into it, you're going to earn something completely different. And what I th- kind of range are you talking about there in terms of what someone could earn? So we have women and men. I keep saying and men because it's like <laughs> 99.99% women. I mean, we're, we're a beauty business and, and these women, these businesses are typically powered by women. We have people earning $50 a month and we have people who made about a million dollars last year are very wow. Top earners, so you see, you really see a range, and again, it, it really comes into what they put into it. But I always say it's the best job in the world, especially for women. I, I really wish that more women um, had the confidence to stay in the game. And it's difficult when you work in corporate environments where there's little flexibility, or even not corporate. If you're, you know, working in a store, or you work for McDonald's, or whatever you're doing, you don't have as much flexibility. What direct retail, what we call direct sales, affords you is the opportunity to build a business that can be equally um, rewarding financially, again, with with significant effort, while allowing you the flexibility to stay in the game but be a mom or, or do this on the side. And we have, we have a variety of people who have replaced six-figure incomes through the beauty counter opportunity. We have some who just want to work three hours a week when their kids are at preschool. We have others who are doing this, who have full-time professional jobs and do it on the side. The beauty counter community 
is growing. How, how big is it at this point? So we have over 20,000 women across the U.S. and Canada selling our products. And the community at large, you know, represents, I don't know, I mean, half, at least half a million, you know, active people. And we've, we've reached millions of people through our product. I learned about it through one of the women who's selling Beauty oh, Counter, a good, a good dear friend of mine from high school in St. Paul, Maren Nelson. Shout out to Maren Nelson. There's a passion behind this brand. When you were originally starting, what was the intention? The intention was really to do a couple of things. First and foremost, I felt a need to educate people on the need for safer ingredients in the products that they use every day. Once I learned that we were being exposed to toxic chemicals through a variety of means, I wanted people to better understand so that they could make uh, smart choices for themselves and their families. I also feel strongly that providing a solution is important. Uh, so often, you you know you can learn of, of the work of nonprofit organizations, and they don't allow you an opportunity to take action or to do something. With Beauty Counter, we really felt we needed to provide products that were both high-performing and safer. And then the third thing that we set out to do immediately was to work on the advocacy side of it because it wasn't enough for one company. No matter how successful we are, it's not enough for one company to move an entire market in the absence of consumer demand and, and, and more health protective laws. And so three pillars, education, product, and advocacy were, were really integral from day one. And one of the things that's fascinating to me is that a lot of these regulations, even looking at the ingredients that are in cosmetics, the last time that was really done at all was pre-World War II. Correct. We have not updated a major federal law since 1938. And the industry today is a, claims to be a $62 billion industry. It is governed by one and a half pages of legislation that, to your point, date back to pre-World War II. And since World War II, we've introduced over 80,000 chemicals into commerce, of which less than 10 percent have been tested for safety on human health. Not, not all of those are using cosmetics. About 10,000 are commonly used in cosmetic and personal care products. And we, as a company, have taken 1,500 ingredients and we've said, okay, these are the 1,500 ingredients that we will never formulate with. 2013 is when you really got started on Beauty Counter. You had a background in retail. You had a background as an entrepreneur. What were some of the things you did in the early stages to make Beauty Counter what it is today? From day one, I surrounded myself by with people who are you know, smarter than I am, but also had expertise in areas that I didn't. So I've, I don't come from the beauty industry. I had no beauty background whatsoever. And so I immediately partnered with a woman named Christy Coleman, who's a leading fashion celebrity makeup artist. And since then, we've continued to invest in a team that can lead us both from a performance and, and safety standpoint, but now also innovation. We are a direct retail model, sell direct to consumer through multiple channels, the largest of which is our network of independent consultants. So I also immediately um, brought in people who had previous experience in direct sales, um, a woman named Gina Murphy, who could really help us um, build out a field of consultants who could be, you know, agents for change as well as business builders. Um, and I think also the, the thing that I've also felt was we did well at Beauty Counter from day one, because we've done a million things wrong. Is, well, um, what, tell me, I want to hear about some of the, the mistakes, too, in addition to what went right. Well, let's see. I could, I could go on for hours about the mistakes. I think... I think a couple of the mistakes we made, I mean, one that's just glaringly obvious to me is, as I think to other people as they build businesses, you know, is hiring friends, you know, it doesn't work. And I, I did that in the beginning and had some, You hired your friends. I had I hired some friends and that didn't work out personally or professionally for me. They're so, not your friends anymore. Some of them aren't. And that's hard. You know, when you have people who are um, around you, it, I, as an entrepreneur, sometimes it's nice to surround yourself with people who you can talk with and support you. But 
they aren't necessarily the right people for the specific jobs that you know or tasks at hand. And I think that's one of the things that we've done wrong. I think the thing that I would say we really did the wrong and have, are struggling now to, to overcome is not invest in technology and the right type of technology from day one. And so that can be in, – in today's market, if you're not at the cutting edge from a digital standpoint, it's difficult. And I think that's an impediment to growth, both for our consultants and our consumers. Tell me a little bit about that. What, what, what kind of technology would have been worthwhile looking at? I think it's less about the specific type of technology. I think the challenge for us was, um, at the time, was that we came out of, we were trying to support an industry that needed a specific type of back end to to be able to service our consultants, the women who sell our product, and and men, but primarily women, because of the compensation plan. That's different than a traditional e-commerce platform, which is just someone's buying a product and you're shipping it to them. And we took sort of mediocre you know, technology because that industry is somewhat antiquated and tried to marry it to, to the needs of today's consumer. And that didn't really work very well. So now we're really focused on becoming a digital first business, both for our consultant community and for our clients at large. People want to shop brands when they want, how they want, where they want. And we need to get, you know, get to where they are today. So that's been a challenge. What are the best of the consultants doing? What are they doing right? I think, first of all, they are doing a couple things. They're educating their communities on the need for safer ingredients. And again, we are a mission-based B corporation focused on that. But they are also simultaneously providing solutions through products and, 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 you know, and, and sharing our products with people because we do have phenomenal products. And asking people to, to join them in this in this movement, and whether that joining them means become a client, whether joining them means becoming a member with Beauty Counter, or means becoming part of their team, you know, we have a whole conversation around the idea of take the job. That this is a business opportunity that is afforded to women and men in this country that allows them to build a business that's financially rewarding while simultaneously having significant social impact. People want to be part of a movement, and we are building a significant movement. And so what it has done is allowed people, you know, flexible work opportunities um, that have the ability to do something important. And I think people love that. What's the difference in your mind between being for-profit and having a mission to fulfill and an authentic reason for being versus just being a nonprofit and saying, all right, we know what we want to do. We're going to go out and accomplish that and make the world a better place. It's a good question. I think that consumer brands can move markets faster than nonprofit organizations can. I think if, you know, if Apple or Nike or someone tells you to do something, you, you may do it because you have an affinity for the brand and, and, and that you want the brand association. I also think that more businesses uh, today and, and moving forward have the opportunity to use commerce as an engine for change. I think there are lots of nonprofit organizations doing incredible work, and we work with many of them, the Environmental Working Group, the Breast Cancer Fund, Stand Up to Cancer, and others. And those there's a real need for those. But I think from a business perspective, my opinion is that people, you know, they talk about conscious capitalism or social entrepreneurship. That should be the way of the future. They shouldn't be mutually exclusive. You should be able to build businesses that are highly profitable, create tons of jobs for people, but are simultaneously moving markets and doing things that are good for the world. And I I think that if we did a little bit more of that, we'd be in a much better place as a country and as a world than we are today. And I think it's disappointing to see us sort of sell our souls in the name of capitalism. Why can't we do both? And I think Beauty Counter is an example of a company that is 
pro-commerce, pro-regulation, pro-profit, but also pro-social impact. And I think we've been extremely successful over the last few years because today's consumer wants that and believes that's the way to move things forward. How do you make it work? And in particular, how do you make it work when something that you know helps your mission statement doesn't necessarily help your bottom line? So we are a B corporation, which means that we place into emphasis people, planet, profit at all times. So any major decision that is made at Beauty Counter has to focus on those three areas. It's, it's Our mission is to get safer products into everyone's hands. That will obviously not mean beauty counter products into everyone's hands. And so to that end, we need to do what's right to serve the mission at all times. What I have found is that if we stay true to our mission and we focus on our advocacy and our education, focus on you know getting the cleanest products we can and and making those difficult decisions where an organic or a safer ingredient might be far more expensive than a conventional one, we always do the right thing because we are focused on transparency, integrity, and moving a market. The honest truth is the world does not need another beauty business. What we need is safer products and families to be healthier. And you're hoping that yours will push all of them in that direction. I think it's fair to say that Beauty Counter has been leading this charge. I think that we are um, the, the the sort of the leader of this movement for safer, cleaner cosmetics. I think we've been recognized as such. Um, there are many companies that are doing what we're doing in certain ways around us, and we applaud them, and we're thrilled that they've, you know, that they've started to do this, and people are taking. You're not lead. looking over your shoulder saying, "Uh oh, competition's yeah. coming." You know, I always say that um, it's probably true that Walmart sells more organic product today than Whole Foods because of their scale, but Whole Foods will always be known for the for the leader in that marketplace for having gone out and told the real story, whether it's you know farm to table, whether it was the organic produce, the story of the people behind the product. I mean, I think with our consultants, we're always talking about the people behind our mission and our movement. When you look at companies today that are trying to do what you're doing, they but, but maybe they started, they didn't have a mission statement. or Their mission was to make a great product and get a lot of people to buy it. Now they want to integrate something more meaningful, some bigger purpose. What's the right way to do that? I see a lot of companies struggling with it. Well, I think at the end of the day, you have to genuinely, authentically want to do it, first of all. I mean, I, that sounds ridiculous, but it kind of goes back to the cause-related marketing It can't just programs. be a PR campaign. No, you. I mean, I think I think that breast cancer would probably be one of the best examples of, of people that use, you know, an important issue as a PR campaign. You know, it's if you, for example, if you want... Um, if you want to make safer products, then remove harmful ingredients, right? And, and as opposed to selling pink blenders or whatever, I think there are a lot of a lot of companies that have used it because they know that people care about certain issues. For me, it's if you want to move a market or you want to do the right thing, then do it internally from the beginning. So set yourself up for success by really focusing on making those difficult choices. And it is they are tragedies of choices every single day for us. I mean, every day we have to look at well, this is going to hit the bottom line, but this is the right thing to do and making all those difficult decisions. But if you are singularly focused on your mission, the money will come and um, and you'll do the right thing. And that's a, that's tough. And it's hard to undo things. I think a lot of times when you see companies that are struggling with it, to your point, they set out and they built a business on one thing. And now they're trying to sort of, you know, switch switch courses and, and do it differently. And I think that's hard, but I think you can take small steps. It's a it's a really interesting point, I think, for entrepreneurs and, and women who want to start businesses, because if you start with the basis of why you're doing this and you're very clear about that, then all the other things, while there'll be difficult decisions along the way, are much clearer. 
Right. We have known – I mean, I've been crystal clear on our mission from day one. And I think when we, when I look at the beauty counter consultants, for example, who've decided to join us and build businesses with us, the, the thing that they, they say all the time, well, I'm not, I'm not a salesperson or I don't really – I'm not a chemist. And I said, you don't need to be. Tell me what your story is. Why are you doing this? Why did you start Beauty Counter? I mean, your friend started to work for Beauty Counter for a reason. I'm not sure what her reason. But I find it's – I need to be able to afford to put braces on my son – my child has health issues and the, and the medical bills are staggering or I'm in passion with the environmental health movement or I myself am a breast cancer survivor and I want other people to understand. For us, it's really finding the, the true story of why you're doing that. And I think as entrepreneurs, I would say most entrepreneurs that I know, if they're really an entrepreneur, they have a driving passion inside. They see an issue, and an opportunity, and they want to address that with a solution that makes sense for the marketplace. Toughest lesson you've had to learn along the way? Oh, that's a good one. Um, well, I think the toughest lesson, which is not specific to Beauty Counter, but I would say this to people who are building businesses and entrepreneurs, is my last company, The Wedding List, was really successful, but we brought in the wrong financial backers. And what happened is when the dot-com market blew up, they became incredibly scared, and they forced us to to sell uh, at a time that we weren't right. We, went, we had not yet realized our potential, but they forced us to spend, and then they and then they refused to fund anymore because they were scared of because of other um, other companies in their portfolio. We had met and exceeded all of our revenue expectations, and we were really on a roll to do something really incredible. And I think that we were forced to prematurely sell. And so when I went into the beauty counter opportunity, I was very careful about my choice of investors. So I think that was real. It was a really hard lesson because I think that wedding list should be a household name today, and it's not um, because because of the timing of the acquisition. What an incredible part of your history, though, the idea that you built this thing, it essentially got taken away from you, taken over by somebody else, and then you still decided to go out and build another one. I know, I'm really dumb. <laughs> no. It's kind of like, it's kind of like when you have a baby. That's, but, but what is that driving force in you? Because I think at the end of the day, I feel that I was put on this earth to do something, that I had the ability to do something important in the business world. And I think for me, the the opportunity to create a business that was actually going to move a market in the right direction, which would actually lead to a safer and healthier country, is something that I, I just felt incredibly compelled to do. I, I, you know, of course I want to build a business that's financially successful, and, and we have been. But to me, it's really about how do you use the time that you have to do something extremely important and to bring people along with you in this journey. And I think it's been – it's the thing that gets me up. I mean, I think I have the greatest job in the world, and I'm so lucky to work with this incredible team of women and men and to be able to, you know, build this platform upon which people have built businesses and hopefully in time see more health protective laws in this country. I mean, I think at the end of the day, we're not going to give up until we see that this industry change because it needs to. What was the worst advice you got along your career? I think that uh, the worst advice, well, I, it's not even advice. I think what I think is is happened so often and it's happened at different times in my career is be, being told, no, you can't do something. Because at the end of the day, you can do anything you want to if you continue to persevere and you are scrappy and resourceful and unapologetic about following up with people or asking for the order or cold calling a CEO. You know, and when you know when I um, when I first started the wedding list, I remember someone uh, I wanted to talk to the then CEO of Saks Fifth Avenue, Phil Miller, who was a mentor to me for many years afterwards. And I remember they said, you'll never, you, you can never get in touch with him. He's the CEO of Saks Fifth Avenue. And this is when Saks Fifth Avenue was, you know, in its heyday. And I said, well, that's ridiculous. And I remember calling him at like 7.30 in the morning. And, you know, CEOs often are in the office at the crack of dawn and they'll answer the phones at those moments. 
And and so, you know, if I had taken that advice, I would never have gotten where I did. Because what I, was the what was that phone call like? What was the secret to really breaking <clears throat> through there and making him your your lifetime mentor? Well, it was funny because he I remember calling him and I, I said, you know, I have this business called The Wedding List and it's bringing in younger consumers and you need me. And he said, I don't need you. I'm not. You really do. You need me more than I need you. And it was such a ballsy thing to say. I remember <laughs> he laughed. He said, OK, you have 20 minutes. And I went into the first meeting with him and he had all these senior people in sex. And I was, you know, I was young and they were, you know, older and more established. And I said, look, you know, your your client is getting older. Look at all the sales you lost for me as a young bride if you had just learned how to maximize this opportunity. And he really listens. And I think having the confidence just to go out there and say, when people tell you no, say yes, I can do this. And that's to me, that is consistent bad advice that people are given. Don't pursue your dreams or that's too crazy or you can't do you can't be a mom and be a career woman. And I, and I don't believe that. I always say, you know, you can't have every you can have everything. You can't have it all in one day. But you can be an amazing mom, an amazing wife or partner, and be an incredible career person. And I think it's it's staying in the game and being told not to, to me, is doing um, women in American families a disservice. Greg, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of No Limits. Remember, if you like what you heard, make sure to subscribe, rate us, and tell your friends. And special thanks to the team here at ABC that helps make this happen. Taylor Dunn, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelb, Michelle Boncardo, Steve Jones, Annie Osakwe, and Elizabeth Hecht. And join me next Tuesday for an all-new episode of No Limits with Rebecca Jarvis. Until then, take care, be well. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.